Welcome to the 5 Minute Mom Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen. Coming up on this episode, I'm joined by my old friend, Keith Fraze, the great editor, and we're discussing all that jazz and Bob Fosse. All that jazz being voted by the ACE by fellow editors as one of the five best edited films of all time. But first off, what I watched this week, I think I can divide it into something interesting and the thing everyone else watched going with what's interesting i found i heard about this hungarian film from 2011 called final cut ladies and gentlemen and it's not widely available or it's not commercially available it's actually widely available i watched it on vimeo and i believe it's also officially released to youtube it is from 2011 but it is like the end-all be-all of mashups. This movie is clipped together of trying to tell the same story boy meets girl throughout all these film clips throughout the film history, and there's like over 150 clips in it. Uh, it's directed by uh, Georgi Palfe, and I guess what happened was he was he, he had his funding taken away from him from a state grant, but he still had a post-production grant, and he had four editors work for three years on this and it played at can but you can i found like i said i found it on vimeo it's officially released on youtube i want to say bellatar is listed as one of the producers on it it's it's a joy it's an absolute joy and i mean to be fair i'm an easy lay for mashup movies and especially something that can go feature length like i don't i can't think of another mashup off the top of my head besides los angeles plays itself and to be fair i i get into the habit of like Whenever I watch mashups, it's it's the gamification in, in, in me, but I, I try to see if I can pick the, where the clip is from. But it, they pick from all over the map, from Touch of Evil to Titanic to Chaplin to all over the place. But as for what I watch that everyone else watched, Godzilla vs. Kong. Um... I didn't mention this last week, but for those, for the TV on the radio audience, who's got two thumbs and got vaccinated last week or like a week and a half ago? Me, or at least I got my first dose. And so even though I'm only halfway there, I was maybe going to start braving the movie theater again, even though in theory I've been going since last July and uh, tried in December, January to go consistently when the theaters were still pretty dead and empty. But now... Godzilla vs. Kong had, like, the single best pandemic opening, I believe. And so, anyone who's thinking about going back to the movie, the best piece of advice I can give you, if you're still wary of it, is to, if your theater has advanced seating, just check how crowded the theater is. And when I checked, sure enough, it was crowded, so I backed off, watched it at home. And I am of multiple minds on this movie just because, in theory, this made me miss the theatrical experience that is not available to me in Evansville just because I wanted to see this at an Alamo Draft House. I wanted to see this movie with a really fun pre-screening video of made by people who are Toho fans and who understood the appeal of monster versus monster movies. And I really wanted to be like eating chicken wings or chips and queso while watching this. Someone else pointed out, uh, I read recently, the film critic this like after the last year of me complaining about wanting to get back into a theater enjoy the theatrical experience then actually there's a weird feeling in 2020 where we didn't actually miss the theater or i didn't miss the theatrical experience as it is now and i know if i had gone in there i would have gone with a terrible crowd 
to watch this movie. And I know that's contradictory, but just an Evansville crowd, I just wouldn't imagine, would enjoy movie. And just this movie is dumb. And the thing about it, when you had a year of theatrical movies taken away from you, I mean, I'll, I'll rail against the gatekeeper's choices on what movies are being having hundreds of millions of dollars spent on them, and it's I'm sure they're listening and taking notes on everything I'm saying to them. But why spend the money on this? Just why? It's this movie's everything just so fucking stupid. Like the the scene where Brian Tyree Henry and Millie Bobby Brown with Brian Tyree Henry playing the know-it-all podcaster <laughs> fuck those guys um and turns to millie bobby brown and they both find lines of agreement by admitting that they don't drink tap water because there's fluoride in the tap water and the movie treats them as the smart ones just what 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 the fuck movies are we making for people we, we sit around wondering why people are so conspiracy minded and then you make the heroes and the, the smart ones in the movie say shit like this it's just wasn't didn't dr strangelove like have a the, the whole plot of the movie based on the idea that a man blows up the world because he thinks that fluoride is put into water that's poisoning him or at least making him impotent <sighs> This movie's stupid. I mean, it's it, and I think everyone else is commenting on it. The other fascinating thing about everyone's complaints about the stupidity of the movie is the usual complaint with uh, all the Godzilla movies that the human stories are getting in the way. I either read or saw a YouTube video a while back pointing out they did a graph uh, comparing the American Godzilla movies with the uh, Toho movies, and they compared and contrast the amount of human screen time versus monster screen time. And they found that the Gareth Edwards version actually was right in the middle of the graph. And I don't pretend to be a Toho fan, so I don't. But it, it, it's, it seems like the human stuff is the engines for these movies. And I don't know, maybe the American just hasn't nailed it yet, or the spectacle's too good. I just wish this movie was dumb, wasn't as dumb. And I'm, I'm so sick of this junk values that studio heads are putting into these movies. And... and Movies to come back from 20 to 20 and to get people back in the theaters, movies need to be better. They need to justify. They need to be more intimate and spectacle. The franchises no longer have a blank check on, hopefully, on the uh, the lowest common denominator. And for to get asses back into seats, studios just need to make better movies. I, I mean, that's the bottom line of it. So, anyway, on with the episode. So, did you? When did you end up watching this? Last night. What, what was your first viewing of this, or was this your first Fosse movie? No, um, I had seen. I think I, the first Fosse movie I saw was Cabaret, um, because I. I feel like a lot of that would have been a lot of people. A lot of people would have done the thing where they go through the Academy Award winner lists or something like that. Well, I also just am a big fan of. Musicals in general. I was going to say, you've got the musical theater background. Big, bold musicals is just my cup of tea. And so Cabaret, I loved. Um, 
Uh, I forgot when I saw it, but it definitely must have been early on because I, I, I for, for as long as I can remember, I have, I've, I've had like a deep seated crush on uh, Liza Minnelli, <laughs> and, I, and I think it was only from that movie. So, but um, uh, yeah, so Cabaret, and then, um, and then yeah, then I saw, then I saw Lenny, and Lenny I saw a couple of times. Um, I was gonna try to find this. I was gonna try to find this before we talked, but I don't, uh, I don't know if I told you this. I there was like a scholarship or something I applied for in college, or maybe it was even after college. I was like thinking about going to grad school. I can't remember what. And I, and one of the things, and it was, it was, it was in film. It was, it was for an editing scholarship. And one of the things I had to do was write a, um, a paper on a film that I thought was like had truly inspired editing. And I, and I didn't want to choose like the standard stuff or, you know, or write about, everyone's going to write about Lawrence of Arabia and the cut from the match to the sun and something like that. So, um, I was like, uh, I want to find something that people probably wouldn't be talking about. So I chose Linny. So I wrote a whole paper on Linny. Um, and I couldn't find it again. I don't know, I'm sure it must have been lost to somewhere in my hard drive. Uh, but I remember loving that movie so much and the editing of it. And I've actually, when I taught classes um, in editing since then, I've shown scenes from Linny and tried talking about it. Well, what's funny is as I've gotten more into the research, reading, rereading a little of Sam Wasson's book, and just hearing Alan Heim, the editor of both Lenny and all that jazz talk, like deceptively, it sounds like Lenny is the more because a lot of what's impressively edited in all that jazz was written in. And they talked about how it was staged that way and ended up being more restrictive just because they would shot, I assume, not in a nonlinear fashion where they knew what was cutting to what. And whereas as a process we've discovered in the past, a lot of times it's more interesting and sometimes if you get it right organic to discover this than to have it like con conceptualized that way. And you gives you more freedom to actually make it work once you're in the editorial room. And Lenny was that way. Lenny was, they discovered more. Mm. That's so interesting. Well, I mean, I, I mean, well, I, I mean, I actually am fascinated to hear that any of what was done in all that jazz was actually written to the script because it feels like it was all found. Like some of the, so much of it seems like it was found and discovered and had to be experimented with. I don't know how a person could possibly have written that into the script. Well, you get to that last half hour, that last half hour where there's just, two, there's two Bob Fosse's, one's in a hospital bed, one's directing himself. Right. So you, you have to like, you have to figure that out. But I mean, so my, um, I don't really have auspicious like memory of. I did watch Bob Fosse a bit in high school before going into college, but he wasn't one of those early people. But um, I really thought that he only did three movies. I thought he did Cabaret, Lenny, all that jazz. Uh, I saw Star Eighty a few years later at. I've mentioned it a few times on this show. Um, Richard Linklater used to have a series that he would show 35 millimeter prints at the Marquesa in Austin for this series he called Jewels in the Wasteland about um, movies from the eighties that were ignored. And so I saw that for the first time on a print that, that he presented. And then I just saw Sweet Charity, um, Fosse's very first movie just a few weeks ago. And I, we, we'll get into Sweet Charity later. I, I probably should kind of glaze over it just because there's not much to, say about it except a historical antecedent but the thing about cabaret when i first saw it i didn't really think of it as a musical and reading more about it this editorial idea he had where the the musical sequences were separated from basically non-musical dramatic 
scenes played out around it. And then when they got to editorial, they found that they started intercutting the, the, the actual dramatic stuff with the musical sequences. It still gave you the musical feeling of characters expressing something or something being expressed more. But because like Fosse described Cabaret as the first adult musical or at least the first adult American musical. And then you go into Lenny, which besides a few strip dance numbers, doesn't really even ha doesn't really have much music and has very, very few dance into it. And then you do the intercutting there too, where it's based on a play where there would be Lenny Bruce stand up stuff. And then it would be intercut with a scene that's supposed to juxtapose that. And then they decided to cut it together. And he found that he, as he embraced editorial more, he wrote it into all that jazz, apparently. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I um, I mean, the thing that I always... Uh, so it's been years since I've seen uh, Cabaret. Uh, Lenny, I've, I've seen more recently, and obviously all the jazz I just recently watched. But I, um, the the progression of... And I've never seen his, the other films, Sweet Charity or, or Star 80. Um, you, you, so, you, uh, you'd be good to watch Star 80. Let's just, let's, let's, let's just say that. Okay. With an omission I, there. You're good to watch Star 80 Star <laughs> Silence. Well, because I love the progression, the progression from Cabaret to Lenny to, to All That Jazz is so fascinating because if, if memory serves, um, Cabaret is, is brilliantly done, but it is in a sense more, more conventionally done than, than Lenny or All That Jazz. Oh, yeah. And that, oh, yeah. It, and that yeah. And that it feels like a, a musical or, or at least, a, like you say, an adult musical. But I remember why I always talk about Lenny is, is that I feel like what a leap um artistically that must have been for someone who is like you can feel Fosse someone who's known as being a choreographer like that's that he is that is his famous that is what everyone knows him for and like he's trying to break out of that mold and so he's going to make a movie that I remember if, if I actually remember correctly Lenny has very little um like uh non-diegetic music in it like it's mostly yeah I think so yeah there's some overlapping dialogue, but not. I don't think they do anything music much musically with it. Right, but the editing of it is so musical. It actually has like a jazz kind of feel to it. The the the, the, the uh, it's almost like they use Dustin Hoffman's um, speeches as like percussive as like a percussive nature to edit against that in some ways. So you're getting to a point that I found, and uh, it wasn't. It, I I tried to read as much of the Sam Lawson book as I could, but my you know. My eyes were bigger than my stomach on that. But um, one of the things I found, not in that book, but in a completely different documentary, Glenn Verdon, um, um, Fosse's ex-wife, who was the half of the recent FX miniseries, Fosse Verdon, pointed out, this is a pet theory of mine, Bob Fosse was a drummer. And I have a pet theory that there's a lot of great directors who have been drummers. Stanley Kubrick was a drummer. Uh, Damien Chazelle was a drummer, obviously, with Whiplash. But yeah. then I, I, I've heard in the past, I feel like Richard Linklater was a drummer. But then you also have people like Peyton Reed, who directed um, um, the, the Ant-Man movies. And he's directed some uh, Get Over It. and Or not Get Over It, but um, he's a drummer. There, it, there's something with the rhythm of an editorial style. And one of the things they found when Fosse got into the editing room was for a guy that, had des who, that worked so in three-dimensional space and live stage, live action stage numbers, he still had such a sense of rhythm just because of all he was doing with dance and that he just took to the editorial so strongly. And it, it also goes to this 
the other reason I want to talk to you, an editor, about Bob Fosse is Bob Fosse is one of two main directors coming out of this time who embraced editorial, especially nonlinear editorial, in a way it just it's shocking. Him and Nicholas Rogue, and both of them come from not editorial backgrounds. You know, Fosse's obviously a choreographer, stage director, and Nicholas Rogue was a cinematographer. He was the cinematographer most notably on, well, where he, where everyone kind of attributes his nonlinear stuff from Richard Lester's Petulia, but he was also like the second unit photographer on Lawrence of Arabia. And like these people are just like jumped into an editorial room and saw how they could play with time in fun ways. Right. Um, so fascinating. I, you know, I, I was thinking about this before uh, uh, leading up to this earlier this week. So an, another film that I watched uh, recently, um, which I've been excited to talk to you about uh, is Reds. I've never seen Reds. Before. You watch Reds? Yeah, and so the reason why I watch Reds, uh, I can't get into this too much, but I'm working on a project right now that is using Reds as a little bit of a um, uh, uh, style lesson. Oh, yeah, okay, you have told me a little bit about this, which is also fascinating if you go back to Lenny. I was surprised at how much of um, the, um, like, the honey stuff or the is, is uh, like, the interview stuff there. Like, Right, exactly. Is it antecedent to that? Yeah, and I'm not bringing this up necessarily to talk about the interview stuff, although all that stuff is brilliant in Reds. But there is a quality of editing that I saw in um, in Reds that's also very similar in all in all that jazz, and and, and also in Linny. In that there's a um, here's actually how I'm going to describe it. I was um, I was at a test screening for a film that I was working on. Um, I won't say which film, but uh, <laughs> I was at a test screening and. Uh, someone who was in the test screening was a film critic and they came up to me and talked to me afterwards and um, I guess I mean they were okay with the <laughs> how the, the whole <laughs> film played out but mainly there was something that we had done in the very beginning of the film that was a little bit more fast-paced and what he said was he, he I don't know if he described it as way he said the film the beginning of the film was very crunchy you have a very lot of crunchy editing in there crunchy and like, I have no idea what that means but what I took it to, to realize... But you do know what that means, though. That, that's an evocative term. It's a very evocative. And I, and, I think, and I feel like that's the kind of editing style of something like Reds and something like uh, All That Jazz, where the editing is, is very... Um, I mean, it's very staccato, if you want to use a musical term. But it's like, it's, 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 it's freewheeling. It's messy. Scenes are cut off in the middle of sentences. And, like, and it's funny, because they actually... I had not remembered this about all that jazz, but at one point in time, you know, when they're showing the, um, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know how much we have to explain about all that jazz and the plot of it, but I, you know, I'm they're good not to, we're good. Yeah. I don't care. There's they, you, um, if you're listening to this point, you have to have seen this movie by now. It's right. So, yeah. So, um, the, uh, uh, you know, early, basically when, when the, um, the movie that they're making in the film, the stand up comes out and, they are uh, they're they're all gathered around in the hospital bed watching the um, television critic rip it apart. She's talking about the the uh, frantic editing where scenes are cut off before the dramatic action resolves itself. Yeah, I remember that phrase particularly. I thought that was a good thing. Yeah, and exactly. I was like, no, no, that's what makes it so brilliant. Is that the scenes are um, that that type of editing style where scenes don't settle and where you jump out at the climax is so invigorating to me. Um, I could watch a million hours of a film that if it just kept, it, it may, you don't always want to do that, but it makes the, it, I realize that when I'm editing a film and I'm, I'm not 
at my most inspired and I let the scene settle, the film gets into a certain rhythm or pace that becomes lugubrious. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or at least if nothing else, predictable. Yeah. And, and if, if, no one can say that all that jazz is predictable in any way, shape, or form in terms of how it's edited. I rewatched all that jazz a few weeks ago, but just a few minutes before we got to this, I I saw for the first time, the uh, I watched it with the Alan Heim, the editor's commentary. And he said he hadn't seen it in years. He saw it in an Academy screening a, few week, or a while back, but this is the first time he'd seen it in a while. And so he was going to go through this rediscovery emotional journey of like seeing this again for the first time in a few years. And he just kept saying over and over, he's like, wow, this flows really well. This flows really well. And that's something editorially you go for just because you like, like William Goldman famously described, you want to get into a scene as late as possible and out as early as possible. And from a writing standpoint, I get that, but I have always found it to be more, you don't want the audience to feel that they understand the rhythm of a scene so that they know where it's going and they can predict where it's going. So if they understand the rhythm of a scene when the scene's only like halfway through, they kind of know where it's going and they're bored already. So that's why you want to cut off the beginning, cut off the end, just because it also just connects the previous scene to the next scene and it just keeps the movie flowing better. Yeah, this movie tumbles along like I mean, it, it tumbles along like a drum solo. <laughs> You're just constantly with like the rhythms solo. changing and moving, and it's like, and it's really, it's, uh, it's absolutely fascinating to watch from a craft point of view. Um, and also, just in terms of how much it, I saw so many things in this film that I clearly influenced later films that i mean i, I don't know I mean, I mean you know films evolve over time and this film probably influenced another film that influenced the film that i'm actually thinking of but um i so first off i want to point out the difficulty the strange difficulty uh that shane both you and i had in tra tracking down this movie and how I, I sat down to watch this film uh, a couple of nights ago and i was like okay let me let me see where it's streaming Okay, well, it's not streaming anywhere for free. That makes sense. But um, I couldn't find it on the Criterion channel. I couldn't find... I couldn't even find... I couldn't rent it on Amazon. Um, that, like, that, that is very... We, we can go into a little later. I don't know if there were some rights issues because um, Fosse was near finished filming and it was a... Um, uh, I want to say an Orion movie. and or It was either Columbia or an Orion movie and they needed extra money and Fosse... You had a way of using his theatrical production style to film. So where sometimes he would shut down production to like do a number. They got stuck on the last number, I believe it was. And when they started balking at money, they went ahead. Um, Heim had to put together a show reel over the weekend and they sold it to Fox to get another like half, another half of the budget into it. And then Fox ended up winning domestic for it. And so I don't know if that screwed up the rights. I watched, um, I don't know how many years it is, but I happen to have the glorious Criterion Blu-ray of it. Although when I last watched it, for some stupid reason, I watched the fucking DVD. And it, only in this commentary where I watched the Blu-ray because I didn't know I was a Blu-ray, but... Yeah, well, I definitely ordered it. I was just so, I'm just always so shocked. You know, we, we're, we're of a generation that, like, it's it's um, almost offensive when we can't find something that's online. You know, our entire like childhoods have been digitized on uh, and are available somewhere on YouTube. The, the most obscure commercial that we saw in the '90s is available somewhere. So the fact that like that uh, an Oscar nominee and a uh, Palm d'Or winner, ACE uh, voted this the fourth best edited movie of all time. Um, 
a current reoccurring theme, which I think is a losing battle on this podcast, is his, the the um, physical media and buying stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I get it. I mean, <laughs> no, like, I mean, I appreciate the physical media. I would love to own the DVD, but it's I, also uh, physical media, and you got to store it somewhere. And you you live in New York, so yeah, that's right. I've already I've already maxed out my DVD uh, capacity <laughs> in my closet. But I was going to say that I, you know, in terms of like the the, the films that this um, clearly inspired. I mean, I, I don't know if this is where I got it from, but the um, the uh, the it's Showtime folks montage with the dexedrin popping of the pills. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, is that where Aronofsky got his like hip hop montage um, inspiration for uh, from for Requiem for a Dream? I mean, I mean, it has to be almost. Wow. I mean that 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 must. I mean, because like there, I I didn't realize how. Um, closely those are how similar they are I mean you even got the a, a reoccurring a reoccurring motif image that starts with the pill pop it, bottle popping yeah we even got like the dilation of the eyes I mean he's putting like drops in his eyes right. and stuff like that. he's not shooting up heroin but uh, it's um, I just thought that the rhythms of it were so similar to the of the uh, the uh, the hip-hop montage which I've studied deeply in film school so i was surprised there was a few antecedents that like uh and there were bizarre ones like on the commentary hein pointed out um hopefully the subject of another episode we're planning on doing in the future um he said one sequence referenced the singing detective which i didn't see but that's kind of surprising um um jessica lang as death uh, kind of reminds me of uh the neil gaiman series sandman and their interpretation mm-hmm. of death i understand yeah, like there's there's a lot of yeah like well some of those aspects you can clearly see the um I mean uh the, I had forgotten how similar it was to eight and a half uh I mean there's the obvious ideas but there are so many more uh, yeah similarities in that this gets okay this is the point I want to bring up did you re- read this recent essay Scorsese published about Fellini. It was, it was, the internet kind of let it spread because he defined what he thought of content was what they got from it, which is only in like the first three paragraphs. But the whole essay is about Fellini. It's a good essay too. Mm. Did you read, see that? I, I, I didn't read it, no. Well, he dictates that, um, he mentions uh, all that jazz in the essay, but he talks about the series of films that came from eight and a half that for starters we're going to have to go into Fosse's influence from Fellini this movie is shot by a uh, Gia Sampino Rutuno who is uh, yeah. Fellini's uh, cinematographer but um Sweet Charity is based off Knights of Cabria which uh mm. which stars Juliet Messina which is one of your go-tos oh yeah but um Scorsese in the essay points out four films or three films that come from eight and a half only one of or two which i knew this one stardust memories from woody allen and the first one which i've never seen is paul mazursky's alex in wonderland but Mm. this gets to one of the weird tonal maybe philosophical oddities i find about this movie that once um you watch it it's a director making an autobiographical movie about him apologizing to all the people in his life while being very straightforward and honest about all the things going through his life, but he's still in a position of power. And he's still, like, you you get the sense that he's sorry for all the stuff he's doing, but he's not willing to change anything in his life. 
to, to make anything better for the people around him. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating watching this movie now in today's age because I was, I mean, I've, um, as I was watching it, I was, I was just thinking about like, hey, this is kind of a movie, like you can't, <laughs> this can't, this, you, you can't make a movie like this. I mean, the, 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 what's so interesting about it, how do I put this? The, uh, I mean, it's a deeply, it's a weird movie where that's deeply misogynistic. But it's also... I'm glad um, you said it. Yeah. yeah. It's deeply misogynistic. It's also egotistical in that... I mean, it's just egotistical from the standpoint of like... I mean, eight and a half is the same way. In that like, how do you... Like, you're like, I'm going to make a movie about myself and... When you make a movie that big, I mean, a, mo- a production inherently involves so many resources and so many people. So you're involving all this money and value to go into someone getting out your inner soul but also you get so navel gazy to describe like the process of making a movie like one of the things that was in the sam lawson book they described was um the reaction to the uh cast and crew screen which i found fascinating because you know he's Fosse's detailing all these people in his life who are then turning around some of these people are playing themselves alan hein plays himself um uh i want to say his court like a uh, there's like three or four other people involved in life who play in themselves. And um, when they read the script, you, you know this experience. When you read the script, you kind of get an idea of what the vibes of the, and the intentions of the movie are, but you don't really get it until you see the full uh, ver- scene on screen. And when the cast and crew, one of the quotes they had was, um, or the quote from the book he said was, he slash it was an egomaniacal, narcissistic, an old favorite, courageous, immature, brilliant, fake Fellini, four and a fourth. It he was announcing suicide, crying out for attention, apologizing, pleading to be understood, asking to be crowned a genius. And then, like, um, one person who watched the screening said, like, said, it, apparently it was just a pall over the, the cast and crew screen. One said, it's like, I've been working for a madman, but at least I finally understand his moody moments. <laughs> that's so fascinating. Well, that's what makes the movie so interesting, is that, like, it is... Um, like I said, like it's it's the character is both shown the the character of Joe Gideon is both shown to be somebody who's despicable and not to be um, given much sympathy, but it's but it's also to be heralded as a genius, to be heralded for his for his work, to be to be shown as actually a misunderstood genius. So it's this weird film of 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 like it, you can tell it's a confessional. It's a confession. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah totally. And that's that's admirable, but it's not just a confessional. It is also like he's he's also you know blowing smoke up his own own ass a bit. And and and, and I mean it's hard to say because Fosse is a genius or was a genius. And um, but it's just these weird kind of. I mean, this is the kind of strange narcissistic um, endeavor to make a film about yourself so deeply about yourself and so clearly about yourself. And it's interesting to, as an artist, I'm sure to like explore those, explore your own darkness, I think is very, very um, admirable as, as an artistic achievement, but <laughs> there's so many problematic aspects of the film because while exploring the darkness, there's also plenty of other avenues that he shows. It's almost like, it's it's it, it, I don't even know how to put it. It's almost like he's looking back into his past 
and trying to apologize for certain things that he's still in the process of doing oh, totally, while he's totally. making this movie. Well, so this one of the fascinating things was uh, rewatching this. I think this is now my third viewing. It's I feel like rereading the Sam or reading the Sam Watson book as much as I got into it. Um, he nailed a lot of what his problems were, and he nailed a lot of what the people in his life thought his problems were. But um, the other big reason I wanted to do this, and the reason uh, Fosse has been on my mind, was you didn't by chance see any of from a few years ago the Fosse Verndon uh, miniseries. No, I didn't. The Fosse Verndon miniseries is based on the Sam Wasson book, but what I had heard from a friend was that. Um, um, their daughter wanted uh, Glenn Verdon to be Gwen Verdon to be involved, uh, be, be a bigger part of the of the thing, just to point out how much she was in part of the process. And you resaw a lot of the stuff he was talking about in all that jazz from the point of view of a person who was just not just like this side character that doesn't pass the Blackdell test of being like, oh yeah, I'm sorry, or what's the what's the quote at the end? At least I won't have to lie to you anymore. Like. Right. Not that person who's like, oh, I'm a fully actualized person because you told me you don't have to lie to me anymore. This actually like dramatized the real thing. The eighth episode is the one I wanted to talk about because the way the series goes is it covers all of his movies. It doesn't go to Star 80, but it goes. It starts out with Sweet Charity. And the final episode, um, Bob Fosse was best friends with, um, amongst other playwrights, Patty Chayefsky. Patty Chayefsky is a major character in the series. And the eighth episode owns with this monologue about, or this dialogue between them in Central Park, where Fonzie's about a, a month away from shooting, and he's complaining about the script. And um, earlier episodes, they've, you know, Fosse has been pushing himself, and he's had his heart attack in '74 or whenever it was, and ended up Patty Chayefsky had another heart attack, and he's closer to death right now too. So they're commiserating as two friends who've had heart attacks, and Fosse. Fosse complains about the uh, what he's doing. He's like, I, I'm a month out. I need to change writers. The script's not working. And Patty Chayefsky is like, um, the problem's always the same with all your movies. Your ending is shit because your characters don't change. And he says, um, and then Fosse tries to, as Sam, Rock, Sam Rockwell's playing Fosse and Norbert Lear Butts is playing uh, Chayefsky. The Foss, Sam Rockwell tries to defend and says, well, Lenny doesn't change. Charity doesn't change. And, and, Chayefsky in complaints like, yeah, that's it's the problem with all your movies. You're in and your endings suck because your characters don't change. And then he dictates a better way of uh, how this movie could have played out. And he he gives a three act structure where Act One is where Joe. By the way, Joe Gideon Gideon is named from a Chayefsky play. Hmm. That's where the name came from. Act One: Joe meets a beautiful girl, falls in love, uh, and um. Act two, he's realized he's selfish and um, he keeps screwing around and can't stop himself. He ends up in the hospital. And then act three is when he realizes that uh, Gwen Verdon was the woman he wanted to be with all along. Now, granted, the series is about him and Gwen Verdon's relationship, but also Anne Reeking is uh, the girlfriend from the first act in this in this scenario. Anne Reeking plays herself pretty much in all that right. jazz. And I think in this eighth episode, they actually dramatize her having to audition to play herself too. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. I'd read that she had, that, that, that she had to audition for the part and how 
that yeah that it was humili- uh, humiliating for her but um i mean she does a beautiful job in the movie <laughs> This also goes to this the weird thing of um, all that jazz is about an autobiography where um, Fosse went down to such details as the Dexedrine bottle, the address on the Dexedrine bottle is three streets off from his real address. Wow. But at the same time, he still pretended it's not him. Alan Heim in the editing room kept talking about the character and referencing him as Bob and Fosse would get pissed off at that. And then in the commentary, I shit you not, he's like, he point, he was telling that like, oh yeah, Bob will get mad at when I do that. And then when he starts referring to the character, occasionally he slips and calls the character Bob. In the commentary, like, I don't know, 30 years later? That's, why do you think that is? Why is it that someone who's making, I mean, I've, I, someone who's making something that's clearly autobiograph- autobiographical, to not embrace the aspect of it, to not say, because I actually feel like, you know what, I'm going to say this. I think that, that there's a problem <clears throat> with the, that remove that you, ha- that, that if, if you are thinking of it as a character, you give more license, you can give more, because you know, I was trying to, th- something that I actually do admire a little bit more in eight and a half that I think is handled better than in something like All That Jazz, is in Eight and a Half, the man is not only... Um, it's, been, it's been several years since I've seen Eight and a Half, so bear with me. Same I here. I, I was going to say, I don't think Eight and a Half tries to hide it. Well, Eight and a Half... Yeah, I feel like Fellini embraced the fact. But he, yeah. but the man's... All, but the, the, the director, um, um, Marcello Mastriani, uh, he, uh, he's also in a creative slump. He's someone who's had past success, but he's someone who is who is both emotionally and creatively, uh, you know, impotent at the time. You know, he's he's not he's not really sure. And I think I think there's something about that that feels very honest and not. And you never feel that 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 the movie exists to inflate someone's ego or to pat or 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 to stroke someone's ego rather. Eight and a half is famously named because it's Fellini's eight and a half movie because he counts a short. But it, as you mentioned, Joe Gideon is at the top of the world whenever he's doing this. Like, I mean, in real life, Bob Fosse, I mean, he's what, seven years removed from having the first ever EGOT in one year? Right. Yeah. And also, I mean, he's in the middle of work, working on, I mean, I guess he accepts that Linny is a, is a failure. Um, Although it wasn't. It. I mean, I, mean I, I think it did well financially and it, it got a bunch of... It, fairly i think everything except cabaret got bad reviews but like the most of his movies got oscar nominations until star 80 right and i think that and, and also i mean he, he like you said he's at the top of his game because he I mean that the 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 play that he's work or the, the uh yeah the play that he's working on in the movie is going to be chicago which is going to be a massive artistic and commercial success. see i don't know if that's true after watching uh fossey verndon and reading a little bit of the book there's a, a musical he did called dancing i want to say it's before this time where it was something that he just came up on the spot and it involves like this vague orgy on an airplane and this last viewing oh. the seat the big sex se- sequence the big sex dance sequence where you know Oh, I guess Sinatra's not going to sing this song. Um, right. I guess that indicated this is really stuff. That's not Chicago, but also I, I kind of came to that conclusion after watching Fosse Ferndon because Chicago is a huge 
linchpin just because uh, Vernon wants to take credit, much more credit for Chicago than she's gotten in, in history, too. Oh, interesting. Um, anyway, I just feel like... Sorry. Yeah, yeah no, it, it's, it's... But still, like, the problem is that, like, this film is a mixture of both um, confronting and addressing the wrongs that, uh, you know, the main character has done, has committed to these women throughout his life. Um, but also it's a, it, it is still a film that shows him as someone who is desirable, who is, who has, who has slept with all these different women, who is a, again, a misunderstood genius. Cause even when, when Lenny or the stand up in the movie, um, uh, when it, when it's, when it's torn apart by that critic, he's portrayed as a misunderstood genius. Um, and I'm saying this as someone who loves Lenny and thinks Lenny is brilliant and thinks all the jazz is, is brilliant. I rewatched Lenny today and I forgot, I hadn't seen Lenny since high school. I forgot how fucking good it is. Yeah, yeah it's great. And so it's right. And so that's, that's the other complicated aspect of this is that he's right. He was a misunderstood genius in his time. And, um, or at least when it comes to these, these particular films. Um, but I just think that like, what a, but it is hard watching it in, you know, 2021 where you're seeing a privileged, you know, white man uh, yeah. making a film about woe is me. A and... Woe is me is the phrase I was thinking a lot. And it's a powerful guy. Yeah. This, there, there's another aspect I wanted to talk to you about uh, with the musical. One of the musical aspects I found is that, okay, I can finally go a little into Sweet Charity. I was shocked just because when I finally watched Sweet Charity... It's a, it's a stage show him and Gwen Verdon had done uh, together, amongst others. That was one of Verdon's big successes. She had a lot of successes, obviously, on stage. And it was a big budget. Oh, I can't remember if it was Warner's or Columbia or who did it. But it was that period in the late 60s where the studios were dying because they kept putting all this money into these big budget uh, failures. It was like the Dr. Doolittle time or the How the West Was Won era or not mm-hmm. how the western one painter wagons or stuff like that and it's like a two and a half maybe 245 movie with an intermission that just you get through like the first half and you're just like i don't know what i would i'm glad ricardo Montalban's in the movie but i like, don't know what <laughs> he was doing in the movie and it's an overlit stiff cabaret in many ways is a reaction to it mm-hmm. and if you give Fosse credit cinematically for changing the musical form a few years ago actually when we first worked together uh, the big script i had written that i was trying to get made at the time with all uh, people we worked with i had written a musical hmm. and i was fascinated by this idea of the musical going from when I was a teenager first becoming a film snob, I don't know if you got this when you first started getting into film, but you talk to your friends or your parents and they'd be like, oh, you're into film. What genres don't you like? And you want to be like, I like every genre because there's a good version of every genre and there's a bad version of every genre. But when I was a teenager, I would answer that with musicals. I hated musicals because at the time, well, years before that, the Disney Broadway version of that was where, to me, a musical was this very facile, almost commercial selling of something like where lyrics were just 
I always got the sense that people doing dance, song and dance, were trying too fucking hard to please me. And it was exhausting to watch sometimes. And Fosse feels like between going between, if you you do the transition, but don't count Lenny, between Sweet Charity to Cabaret to all that jazz, you see a very sophisticated transition into what a musical should be from an adult standpoint and what it can express and how it can also just not be this like song dance please you as you go along format thing. Um, as someone that I know was into song or into musicals in high school, I kind of wanted to put that to you. What oh, you, yeah. your thoughts? Unabashedly so. I, I, I still to this day I love I love almost all musicals. So first I am a massive convert on musicals, by the way, but at the time. But a lot of it is this modern they have to be like expressing the things a character can't say in normal life, you know? Well I can't remember who said this or where I heard this, but this was all, I think this kind of, um, best adequately, uh, or, or best, um, expresses why I think, like, why do musicals work? Like, why do they work at all? Like, why does it like, why, you know, the film is all about us. Why did they get past the suspension of disbelief? Exactly. I was, I was going to say like, yeah, film is all about the suspension of disbelief and why, how are we able to suspend disbelief when someone who had just been talking all of a sudden starts singing and dancing? And someone said at one point that for all of humanity, we sing when we're at our most, um, when our emotions are most peaked. You know, like when we're, think about like being in church and like being in, or, 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 you know, or, or you're at a football game and you start singing, a, the, the, uh, you know, a, a song, um, the team song or something like that. And or, or anything like you're you, you sing when you're so riled up and you have so much emotion and you just, rah, you know, or, or I don't someone know, said like this to you. Old, well, no, I heard I heard it in some interview. I can't remember who it was or what it is. It's, you know, it's one of those things that's. I'm sure I'm destroying what the actual message of it was, but it was bouncing. It's been bouncing around in my head for years. But there is this notion that um, whenever we want to express, can't be expressed through you know any sort of intelligent speech. You sing, and you and you you and that comes out as pure emotion. Um, and I think for some reason that works, and I and that's why like. I mean, the songs that I've always loved the most is when the character is just at its, you know, I love the big ballads. I love those things that where someone is just like, the energy in them is so, is vibrating so much that uh, no, it's almost like the lyrics don't matter at that point. It's the high notes matter. The belting matters. Um, And here's the thing. So, okay, my, my movie that is, so not only do I love, but it's actually instrumental to um, a lot of what I do and a lot of what I think in terms of any sort of creative aspect when it comes to filmmaking is Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> I have always adored Jesus Christ Superstar. I saw it for the first time when I was, I think, 16 or something like that. I saw it on stage and then I watched the movie. I actually don't love it that much as a stage musical, but the movie of it... Um, uh, Oh, who was it done by? Norman Jewison. I, I, I'm sorry to say I've never seen it. It's a favorite of my dad's who I think was trying to push it on to me in his born-again Christian phase, phase, but I still I don't think I've ever seen it. Yeah, I think it was directed by Norman Jewison, the same guy who did... Um, Fiddler on the Roof? Fiddler on the Roof, yeah, thank you. Um, 
and it's beautifully done. It's but it's just something about it is. Um, I remember the Mr. Show parody more than anything else. <laughs> I've never seen that, but I um there is the, the vocal acrobats. The vocal acrobatics that Andrew Lloyd Webber puts the singers through in that is, I mean, it's, you know, it's a rock musical and people are hitting high notes and stuff. And it's just got so much, I don't know, it actually has swagger to it. And um, it's not that important, me talking about this. I'm just gushing about, I'm just <clears throat> gushing about a musical that I always loved. But it does come down to the fact that it's like when emotions are peaked, you don't, you can't speak anymore. You have to sing. But that being said, and that's why I've always loved musicals. Um, but I will say that what I love about all that jazz and Linny and uh, Cabaret to a certain extent is the same thing, is they're actually kind of in a way anti-musicals. Yeah, um, totally, that, totally, all, totally. All that jazz is anti-musical in the same way. I kept thinking about um, one of my favorite Godard films is um, A Woman is a Woman. And I think we've talked about this before. That for the, the longest time was the only Godard movie that I had a great time with because I saw it at an Alamo screening where the audience fucking ate it up oh it's a blast and if i and the thing i remember most about it is like there's a whole opening segment that has lush rich traditional um musical orchestration and it's all building towards the main the, the main character this woman like getting on stage and she like turns around and is about to sing her song and the music cuts out and she starts singing um acapella um <laughs> And, and, and then as soon as she stops singing, the music comes back in and it's so, and not only is it just meta and interesting in a meta way, it's also like dramatically rich and it's emotional in kind of a way. And she feels kind of lonely and naked and bare in a way that she wouldn't otherwise have been. And I just realized that like, I mean, and, and that's, I mean, that's the whole like subverting of expectations that all that jazz does. Um... And, and to a certain extent, I will actually say, you know, the thing is, is that the musical numbers of all that jazz are actually my least favorite parts of the movie. Um, I, you know, this last viewing, I'll, I'll be not to contradict you, but I was really taken with them just because I, I mean, I mean, I've watched the three big uh, Fosse movies within a day and a half, but like, especially the ones in the last half hour, like, see, Okay, I have to jump in there for just a second because this is the one... Th okay, well, okay. first off, I, I want to contradict what I just said. I will say the best scene in the movie, in my mind, is when... Um, oh, I can't remember her name. Anne, uh, Anne Rinking. Um, yeah. When she... Uh, her and the daughter do their little dance. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a cute scene. Like, the one moment of joy in his life. Beautiful, beautiful scene. Um, so, I was wondering when we were going to talk about this, but I'll just jump right in. I love all that jazz. The last 10 minutes are terrible. I, 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 I've always hated You hate it. the last 10 minutes. Okay. Well, so Alan Hine pointed out, he thought, Alan Hine pointed out, he thought that he, it, it wasn't until the end of the movie. Um, there was a few, it was a, the sequence where like, um, after the first heart attack, where uh, Gideon kind of roams around the hospital. He was I just love like, that. See, me, I, I I thought that stuff was like, what are, what are we doing? And Hein was like, I think this was a little long. But then he got to the bye bye life sequence at the end, and he's like, yeah, this was long. We've had fights over this. We will. The I bi, the, the, well, that's the thing. It's like once you get into that Everly Brothers song, and uh, first off, 
it loses all subtlety. It actually goes into camp in a way that I don't think Fosse, this is a weird thing to say, but Fosse does, like you would think Fosse would do camp really well, but it, 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 I don't think it, first off, I don't think it works because A, I don't know what they were doing having Rory Scheider sing. He should not have. He should not have opened his mouth and sung in any sort of way. And, uh, and, I noticed Haim was also pointing out that um, uh, he wasn't keeping rhythm, and he had to cut around rhythmically dancing. Because we also haven't gotten to the whole fact that Roy, Sh- um, um, uh, Richard Dreyfus was originally supposed to play this role. I, I didn't know that at all. Richard Dreyfus. We'll go into this in a second. I, I didn't want to do, derail your thought. We'll go into this in a second. But he was. The, but the whole thing, Fosse said he'd have to cut around whoever he cast as a dancer. You know, it's funny because actually, I think I feel like there's a couple moments where the dancing actually I do buy. I buy that Rochester did like I, I bought the he, dancing the whole time. I, I don't know if yeah. there's just a lack of sophistication on me. I'm pretty sure it is. But him singing "Bye Bye Life," "Bye Bye Your," like here's the thing. I, w- I had totally forgotten that Ben Vereen was in this movie, and I adore Ben Vereen. I will watch a thousand hours of Ben Vereen just sitting Ben Vereen's also a Fosse standby, too. He's, uh, yeah. he's a big part of Sweet Charity, I believe. Yeah. Well, one of the first... I, I can't. I, <laughs> you want to talk about my, my love of musical theater. One of the first memories I have of musical theater is watching an old Sesame Street uh, segment where Ben Vereen sings Mr. Cellophane. And I, <laughs> I have never forgotten that. And that's, I've, I, I, So I have a deep love for Ben Vereen because of that moment. <laughs> Um, but uh, it's uh, so anyway I'm totally happy that Ben Vereen's there don't know what he's doing there but he shows up <laughs> at the end there and um, but this, the, yeah, this, it, this, I think the, the, the musical choice of Bye Bye Love it goes on forever it becomes like this weird campy stage show the only thing that works about it for me is the quick cut to his the, the zipping of the bag is is effective? Yeah, I think that was going to be my my the the quick cut is like a very effective cut. I th- I almost feel like the whole sequence is worth it for that. But uh, that I mean that's basically it. Is I just think it's it's unsubtle and and un like it's just it, it it the tone of the whole movie changes. And I also think I mean just to talk about the quick cut thing for a second, uh, he does a similar thing with Lenny. If I remember correctly, the Lenny is kind of, I mean, it's not a musical segment, but the end of Lenny, I remember, is like a build-up montage that quickly all of a sudden arrives at him. You know, you see that that famous image of um, Lenny Bruce's, like, bathroom or whatever it is. That's the final image of the movie. I, today, I was kind of really paying attention to it because I, I remember it in a similar, and it didn't play out that way. What it is is the mother, um, Lenny's mother drives away with his daughter and makes a complaint about him losing weight and then you very clearly are introducing the information. He's dead. He died. And mm. the cops are coming in, but um, people are walking around the body. And then the last sequence of the movie is like them talking about what he, what happened with his death. There's implication that he c- killed himself because he didn't have money for the trial or going to prison. And then so the that image, they zoom out on that image, is the final image of the movie. I see. Okay. I must have been misremembering it. But... Uh... Anyway, yeah, so the, the last little bit of, uh, I don't know, there's something, because like, I, I do love, actually, so again, uh, Joe Gideon wandering around the hospital, people are trying to find him, he has that kind of nice moment with the janitor. That is a great um, moment. Yeah, that is a good moment. Yeah, where they're like singing the songs, and they're singing Teach the it to me again. songs, yeah, like that I think is actually all lovely and beautiful, it really is just like all of a sudden like this weird um, stage show that just I feel like, oh, and again, the, um, the, uh, 
the stuff where it's featuring his like the, the director stuff of him in the bed I think is all great the 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 stuff featuring his ex-wife and his girlfriend and his daughter is beautiful and actually moving it really is just like the final unfortunately sorry Ben Vereen it's like your final number uh maybe it's also because I have my own connotations with bye bye love I feel like it's it's too it's too famous of a song that's fair I think that's totally fair I think I think what you're pointing out is where the woe is me comes out more than anything else. Right. Well, yeah, that's his final, that final line. At least you won't have to, you know, uh, what that does he say? I, I, I won't have to hurt you anymore or anything like that. There's a, there's a few things I want to point out about this. There's a ton of things I want to point out about this sequence. One of the craziest things I learned in the commentary Alan Hine got halfway through cutting the sequence and got a phone call that his mother had died and then oh, didn't work man. on the sequence for a long time. And then it was rough finishing the sequence after that. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he was very, uh, like I mentioned earlier, he was very ob- observant of uh, Roshiner's rhythms because he thought he was off as a dancer, which also makes me realize how amazing and invisible he was good about making sure all the other dancers were on rhythm even though they were probably you know well trained just because that was very likely a very big fossey thing he was pushing i think the thing that actually if i think about it that sold me so much on on Scheider's dancing that scene it's like the first scene when you really you really get introduced to his daughter where he's like going yeah, through yeah, different yeah. poses oh, yeah. with her it's lovely uh you know uh Having a, I think just a few scenes later is the one where he has the da- he's doing the choreography. He has the dancer on his back, and he's just like moving slowly in, in rhythm with everybody else. With the dancer just like lifting her off the ground with their shoulders kind of entwined with each other. Yeah, there's a certain confidence that that he brings to it that I think is that does sell it. But man, I just I just want to linger for a second because I do think that that's a beautiful the stuff with the daughter is lovely. And not, and I think I think escapes all the issues that I've been talking about with the misogyny and stuff like that. You can see a father who very clearly loves his daughter, but it's very, but again, from Fosse's perspective, acknowledging where he's failed as a parent. I think the I think the the relationship with his daughter is the thing that comes across most in the movie. It was a bigger deal in the uh, Sam Wasson book, and obviously she was a major producer on the Fosse Vernon miniseries so like mm. they talk the, a big subplot on the show is about like throughout the years while he was drinking and pill popping and the rest of the family was drinking a little she would sneak in stuff here and there and she had to deal with addiction later in life but she's been sober for apparently a long time too so yeah it's um I, I mean, I know nothing about that relationship outside of the film. I can only speak really to what was shown in the film and what's, sure. what, what the character was. Um, but I just think there's something so tender and loving about that scene where he's, where like they're going through the motions because he's, he's you can tell like that's where, um, you know, having a daughter myself, uh, not quite that age, but my daughter's five, and I like being able to share your path. There's something about communicating through your passions that really showcases or 
there's a there's a, there's a connection there that's hard to it's not even hard to talk about you know so I and you can see that in this this the, the the scene like you know they're both like to see that his daughter is engaged in dance in a way that is very meaningful to him and like the way that they communicate the best is by like okay you do this put your legs around me and I'm gonna do this and it's so tender and loving um, while all but he's also at the same time this is his 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 passion and his job and he's also like kind of he's also choreographing choreographing at something at the moment so he's like his calling in life yeah yeah so he's like both focused on her but not focused on her and i don't know i really thought that was such a lovely scene and again because i have a daughter maybe it's me just like the the scenes with the daughter i just like immediately latch on to but i just wanted to like mention that scene and and then the scene with the where she dances with the girlfriend i think is just so um the, the most they're the few moments of grace in the movie I, so. I I I I think they're they're clearly the parts where the um uh the autobiographical uh aspects kind of seem pure. And as, when he's apologize cuz all the books about Foss, the ser- mini series in the book really makes a point that like like Fossey just really wanted to fuck anything that came across his path and like he was constantly cheating on whoever he was with and they they try to give this like rosebudian um big deal about uh him losing his virginity as a vaudeville dancer to some strippers when he was a kid and both mm-hmm. i mean all that jazz has a sequence with it where he uh are it, i guess he messed himself but like it kind of looks like he peed his pants but he messed himself in all the jazz but in uh fossey verndon they're much clearer on the actual seduction there oh, okay um yeah they but it it's it still seems like it still seems i don't know it, it seems like a cop-out if you're, you're stuck to fidelity but uh, all of us are stuck to fidelity so it still seems like a cop-out i don't know <laughs> Like, um, well, well, okay, speaking of compouts and odd things of, like, the self-destructive nature, there's two things I want to talk about. Uh, this, uh, the two of the last three episodes, uh, two episodes back, we talked about Southland Tales and Richard Kelly, and I was fascinated by this idea that a lot of what people glommed onto, and not just, like, something like Donnie Darko, but also there's more emerging aspects in Southland Tales, and in this, are the aspects of suicidal ideation. The fact that, like, um, like you, you know the reason I never knew about Star 80 was because I thought this was Bob Fosse's last film because I thought he made this film knowing he was going to die. And oh, interesting. This movie, like, is so about death. And the the the, the Wasson book's all about death. I don't know. It's not so much in Fosse Verndon, but, like, uh, there's a quote from Ring King says where, this is not a man who did not does not want to die, but he did want to flirt with death. And then he cast Jessica Lange, in who was at the time I don't know what role she did in between this and King Kong, but like King Kong wasn't well received, and she was known as this model actress. This is like three years before she got her first Oscar nomination. Everyone knew she was a sol- amazing actress. Mm-hmm. You get you get this beautiful actress to play death to flirt with her, and. <sighs> One of the most touching things I love, the big spoiler alert for Fosse Verned in the miniseries, is it ends with Fosse's real death. And they make a meal out of the fact that when, when it comes time for Fosse to actually die, he dies on a sidewalk in Washington going to a previews of, I want to say it's a revival of Chicago, hmm. but uh, Gwen Verdon's right, he's in Gwen Verdon's arms and he's looking to her as he dies. 
And the way it's played, Fosse is afraid of death. He's just really scared. As opposed to this thing like in All That Jazz where it's flirtation. Like he just... He's so flippant. And there's there's even lines in the movie where like, one of the doctors says at one point he's foolishly, childishly flirting with disaster. Whenever, like, he's taking pills and having the parties in the hospital room and still smoking. Right. You know, I wonder if... I thought about this before, that maybe that there's this... That... I mean, the easy answer is, of course, that we're all, I mean, we're all afraid of death. Everyone's like, it's easy to be flippant until the, the Reaper's actually knocking at your door. And then it's like, oh, shit, I, I, I wasn't prepared for this. But I actually do kind of wonder with people who have, when, when it comes to artists who have made, who have made great works, who are leaving, who who have 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 been building a legacy, who have built been building something. I always kind of wonder in the back of my head if there's like there's this sort of romantic ideal of going out. Like there's always the fear as an artist that you're going to, um, you know, you're 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 gonna you know you're gonna fade out. You know, you're gonna you're gonna rust away. You're not gonna you're not gonna be able to sustain the creative output that you currently have. Go towards and indifference. So, and so there, yeah, and so there is something romantic of, in theory about the idea of, of you know, uh, of burning out all of a sudden rather than fading away. And that I think is, and so I just kind of wonder if that's, there's that, there's that tension in, in the back of someone's mind like that who's dealing with that. I mean, I don't know. I've never, I'm not someone who ever, who's ever dealt with the depression or has ever dealt with uh, in any serious way or has is, or is dealt with any sort of like suicidal thoughts or even engaged in any sort of like soft suicidal activities like <laughs> drinking oneself to, uh, to oblivion um, or popping dexedrine as, as much as it has. But um, I do wonder if that, if, if, if there is that kind of in the back of one's head is that that, and again, again, from Fosse's perspective, making this movie, this feeling of, ah, I'm going to go out as, you know, making my art and I'm going to embrace death. And it's going to be before my time, but I'll be remembered as like a martyr, a martyr for my art or something like that. I did find a quote in the, the Wasson book. I forget what project they were working on, but he was the great editor. Craig McKay was working with uh, Fosse on something and... Fosse gave him a quote saying, yeah, this is going to be my last thing. And I think it was before all that jazz. It was either all that jazz or before all that jazz. It was something related to all that jazz. Um, I did want to point out, weirdly, so this movie started, as best I can tell, going through the book. Um, it was based on, they found a review of a book called Ending by Helm Viltzen. And um, it was a book about death. And so... Fosse then engaged in screenwriter Robert Allen Arthur, and um, he came up. They then started going back and forth because Fosse was big on this idea of using real life stuff for all of his work. You know, there's the line in the uh, movie where uh, the Gideon character is told, "I just wish you didn't share your cock with some with so many people," and he's like, "That's a good line. I should use that." Right. And on uh, the commentary, Heim says, "Yeah, uh, Fosse took from life a lot." So there was a, a writing session where they just started exchanging real story ideas where they didn't change names. 
And then Arthur in like two weeks came up with his draft where he's just like, he uses Fosse's life with Fosse's names in there. And the reason I bring this up in terms of death is this, the, the production of this movie was a long time. They had to push it for a while. There's a few times they stopped production for Foster to reconceive sequences and re-choreograph sequences. And during one stoppage, uh, Arthur died of pancreatic cancer right in the middle of shooting. Oh, wow. There's a lot of death surrounding this movie. Man. Yeah, I wonder if... Hmm. I'm really fascinated now about this notion of... Like, to, to cast... To cast Jessica Lange as the as Angelique or whatever her name is or the Angel of Death is such a like what is that is that because she is she's I, I I wonder if she's more stunning in this movie than she's ever been anywhere I mean and Jessica Lange is a, is a, is a she's pretty stunning King Kong. I, I'm a big fan like uh, King, <laughs> King Kong. Kong yeah yeah no she's great but I I just I just think that uh, uh, just the way she looks in this movie is just so idyllic and there is there has to there you're right there has to be something there. Um, this notion that, that 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 this horrifying thing is coming for me, but I'm going to turn it into this loving, gorgeous you know woman who is both maternal and sensual at the same time, and I'm going to run to her embrace. I, again, I go back to the Gaiman Neil Gaiman version of death, where he he can see the character because it's like the person you want to see and like to embrace death. It's the person who's going to be kindest to you whenever death has to come, as opposed to this cold skeleton and hood. All I have really have left is um, the uh, John Lithgow character was originally supposed to be played by Sidney LeMay. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, oh. We, we didn't go into the rich because uh, there was. <laughs> That character is supposed to be based on like all the characters that uh, Fosse felt were his rivals in on Broadway on stage, like Mike Nichols and a few other stage directors I don't know of anymore. Um, I guess we should go into the Richard Dreyfus thing. He cast Richard Dreyfus, and um, he was gonna cut around Richard Dreyfus dancing. It was Richard Dreyfus literally had like Goodbye Girl and Close Encounters come out within two weeks of each other, and so he was mm-hmm. big in there. But everyone involved, supposedly, including Heim, was trying to push, like, don't don't cast him. And uh, Fosse's like, we'll make it work. We'll cut around him. And then they got on set, and Dreyfus started directing some of the other dancers. Oh, wow. And then Dreyfus himself was just like, I can't do this. and backed out. And then he then used his Jaws co-star friend. I think th- there was also a description of a dinner where Dreyfus, or before, when he knew he was going to leave but hadn't done it yet, had dinner and said, told Schneider, like, I, I think, what do you think of this? Like, he even kind of pr- approached him about that. Back to the Jesus Christ Superstar thing I wanted to point out, uh, uh, Musical in the Desert, I did watch a few of Fosse's big cinematic achievements before, Not stuff he didn't necessarily direct, maybe he choreographed. I got, um, there's a s- sequence in My Sister Eileen, which was supposedly one of his best, because he actually did appear on film. When he, when he started out, he thought he was going to be the next Gene Kelly. And um, he has a sequence of Mr. My Sister Eileen that I watched on YouTube. That was pretty cool. Uh, he's in Damn Yankees, which uh, that sequence is shown a lot in Fosse Verndon. And that actually is a really, really cool sequence. But the one sequence that everyone on YouTube may- loses their shit over, and admittedly, 
is really amazing, is a Stanley Donnan children's film from the mid-70s called Little Prince, where, are, are you familiar? Do, do you, no. It's the basis of um, Michael Jackson's Moonwalk and the Billy G thing, but he basically, you know, whenever, he basically does a sequence where he plays a snake in a desert trying to seduce this little kid, and he talks in these strong S snake sounds, but it's the basis Michael Jackson got the moonwalk from, basically. And look it up on YouTube. It is wow. it is really something. When, when Michael Jackson debuted uh, the moonwalk, I think it was at the, the BET Awards in like 83 or 84, he was wearing a, a very similar uniform to what Fosse wore in this sequence. I had no... Wait, so, so Jackson got the moonwalk from Fosse? Like, it's an extension of it. If you ever thought of Michael Jackson's dancing style and you think of a snake moving, you can see it. And f- like Jackson was Jackson was pretty open about saying Fosse was an influence. It apparently got to the point where uh, he was trying to get um, Fosse to direct the Smooth Criminal video. This is that period where Jackson got like um, John Landis to do the uh, Thriller video, Scorsese to do the Bad video, um, Coppola did the uh, um, Captain EO. He was getting big directors to do big stuff. And so he wanted Fosse to do, uh, back when Smooth Criminal, I forget what the original name was, but when Smooth Criminal was still a demo, he sent it to Fosse and wanted him to do the music video for it. That's so interesting. Slight tangent. I just, two slight tangents. (laughs) Uh, So I just showed my daughter uh, the Smooth Criminal uh, video uh, for the first time. Because we'll, every now and then we'll just sit down, again, trying to trying to get her into the things that I like and I'm passionate about. So I've been showing, so, you know, whenever we have spare time, I'll sit down with my phone. Per Fosse <laughs> showing his daughter uh, passion through dancing. Exactly. I'll show her various uh, clips from different musicals or different dancing. She loves Gene Kelly. Uh, Gene Kelly is one of my favorites. And so... Uh, so she anything with Gene Kelly she'll watch. But I showed her the uh, the smooth the the uh, smooth criminal video and the point in time you know whenever Michael Jackson like leans forward and almost you know you know I, I'm not sure what the move is called but you know where like they, they I, I know what they, you're talking about leans it, forward yeah. and come back she was like she was like oh she blew her mind. Um, but uh, uh, the other thing I'll say is the subway stop where they filmed um, where they filmed uh, the bad uh, music video. It was very, very close to where I used to live. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, if I remember correctly, it was it's the Hoyt Schirmerhorn um, subway stop in Brooklyn. And um, the reason why they filmed there, they've actually filmed a lot of stuff there because there's what's called a dummy platform. There's a platform where no trains come by. It's like got multiple platforms. And so there's always like this dark platform over there that I used to always look at and be like, that's where they, every time I'd go with anybody, whatever, like, that's where they filmed the bad, the bad music video over there. I want to say that scene came up uh, recent, in a recent episode when we were talking about Rumblefish because the opening fight mm-hmm. in Rumblefish, even though it's in Oklahoma, very similarly resembles the opening fight in the bad video. Yep. Very good subway stop. Um, but we do have to talk just just for a second. I, I got to cycle back about Rory Scheider. Every time he comes up in this movie, and I see him at first, like when, the, the couple times I've seen this movie, at first I was like, why did they cast him? Like he always looks so. The first couple of scenes, I'm always like, mm, he's the wrong, he's the wrong person to be in this movie. Then I mean, Rory Scheider's such an incredible actor. He eventually gets into it, and he's great. But I just I always think of him as being such a strange cast. He's pretty choice. blank at the beginning, I guess. Yeah. Well, just also the way he looks. I mean, he looks like a you know like a '70s porn director or something. But um, it's just like okay, he, okay. 
And, and and again, he's he's he gives delivers an incredible performance. And by the end, I don't question it at all. But I'm always, I never would have thought of him as like if you're casting this movie to cast him as 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 this character. Again, I don't know I don't know much about Fosse in real life and what he looked like and his mannerisms and stuff like that. Um, so maybe Shatter's great for it, but uh, anyway, I mean, I I. I... I have a big soft spot for Roy Scheider. Like Roy Scheider, um, he came. They had to push whenever they switched to him. He was shooting Jonathan Demme's uh, very underrated movie, Last Embrace, which um, just Roy Scheider in the seventies was just awesome. Like, oh yeah, he was, and he was in everything that was great. He was like in it. <laughs> yeah, and so, um, I don't know. I, I, there's a part of me that thinks that uh, Fosse may have been leaning toward things that obfuscate, the, because clearly the dress was going to look like him. Fosse, I mean, he has the the bowler hat is the big part of his dress, and he will openly admit that that was because of his receding hairline, and his receding hairline was the reason he never became Gene Kelly on film and had to switch to directing and choreography. It was a big reason, I, I assume, but... Um, I don't know. Um, so he does Star 80 after this, and then he mainly is on stage as film people. I don't know what you, but I barely know what he did after that. I, there was a few mentions in the book. I didn't read some of that stuff. His last thing he almost did was uh, he tried to do a movie on Walter Winchell that Michael Hare was going to write. Michael Hare was the man who wrote the great Vietnam book Dispatches, but which then got Kubrick to have him write of co-write Full Metal Jacket amongst three other writers. Right. And Michael Hare um, wrote a Greek, one of the best books on Kubrick, too. And mm. that was what he was working on when he died. How old was he when he died? You know? Mid-50s, I think. It was a heart attack. And, I mean, like, unsurprisingly and anticlimatically, a heart attack he died of. Yeah, that's so wild. He died so young. It's just... You, I, I, I was thinking in in terms of if you look at he's I don't think he's mentioned barely any in the Peter Biskin book Easy Rider Raging Bulls, but it seems like the fact that it's a big director who didn't have that like time where he just faded out in the eighties he just died it has that Hal Ashby feel where like he just died too young. And like great stuff, like, and it's why like I'm pissed off of like why were you flirting with death? You had so much more. You could have you, you these other directors had so much more that they did. Yeah, well, the thing that I'm the reason why I always like to bring up Fosse and talk about Fosse is because I I'm I'm his legacy is so strange to me as as someone who who truly admires his films and and some of the stuff that you know the the, the technical achievements that he was able to achieve with his filmmaking. Um, I'm so surprised that like, you know, he's, he's, uh, in some ways he's become a little bit of a punchline. Like everyone knows him as like the Fosse hands, jazz hands. You know, after we, we did, we just did this Mike Nichols episode a few episodes back. And after we got done recording it, I pointed out that like, I was going to do a Fosse episode and that he was a contemporary, uh, rival of Mike Nichols. And it was my, with, uh, host Ted Haycraft. And he kind of made a crack of like the joke, which is an improvised joke in Birdcage, but where Robin Williams in a Mike Nichols film goes, Fosse, Fosse, Fosse. Yeah. He's, 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 I mean, and it's sad because he's like, I mean, clearly he's, and I think people know this, they know him as being a better choreographer than just 
jazz hands. Like he's a, but I, I do think that in that aspect of it, like if you think of Fosse, you think of the choreographer. You, very few people think of the the Fosse, the filmmaker. Um, and and Which not is really so Fosse, weird. the filmmaker, but but yeah, but the like adventurous. Um, artistically advancing filmmaker that, that he was. And even, like, because Hal Ashby, I, I do agree, is somebody who's kind of faded away a little bit in terms of, like, the name, but there's such a cult following for... Around um, his period. And the, like, yeah, yeah. Going from Harold and Maude all the way to maybe uh, Coming Home, like, that period is pretty heralded. And, like, it's, I mean, Fosse made three movies. Like, one of the things the Wasson book pointed out was the basic reason Fosse took to editing which I think is the main reason I wanted to talk to you about this just because like he's one of the most editorial to editorially brave and giving towards his editors to experiment and do most of the films. It came from like his obsession with the choreography and like the fact that his style involved the like weird little rhythmic hand jabs that come off like a hand on the hip where the fingers would then flip out. He wanted to cut to the close up rhythmically of that and things like that. And oh, that's so interesting. expanding from there. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the musicality and what's that involved in editing, but whenever people talk to, you know, I, in the editing that I do, I know this is true for you, Shane. Um, you know, I, so the, the, I'm always heavily, I do a lot of work with the soundtrack, both the musical soundtrack as well, as well as the sound effects uh, tracks whenever I'm editing and I, and I can, I consider myself to be very, very musically inclined. And so I'm always, when I'm interviewing for jobs or I'm discussing jobs with directors before I actually take the job, I'm always talking about, okay, what do we think about in terms of music or, or even absence of music? It doesn't matter, but it's all the same thing. But like, what are we, or like, you know, the first question I always ask is like, what music are you listening to while you're either writing the film or planning for the film or whatnot? Cause I do think that music. The first question I ask directors are what scores do you want to temp this with? Yeah. And so, and I always tell people, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm amateur, maybe too advanced of a word, but I'm an amateur musician myself. Um, and I know you keep not an amateur, not an amateur. <laughs> and I, so I always, t I, I tell, and I always, people always get excited about that because they, they understand that there's a, that the musicality of editing is everything. It's all rhythm. It's all, I mean, it's not just rhythm. There is also, you know, the, 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 the choosing and understanding of performance and story structure and whatnot, but there is, but the musicality, it does seem like a lot of it is rhythm and body language is the, yeah. uh, is, is the things, the sauce, no one piece it to, that is the secret to all of it. Right. And, you know, I don't think about it enough. I, I mean, so I, I, <laughs> I don't know if I want this to get out there, but I'll say it. So I did, uh, flirt with dance <laughs> for a long time. You know, I, so I, I have I come pictures from, too, by the way. <laughs> so not only, yeah, we mentioned my musical theater background, but I, I came from a background of theater, but I did, you know, I did do a lot of classes in dance and whatnot. And I'm a terrible dancer. So that take that for what it's worth. But I, I admire the craft of dancing so much. And I do love, I love watching, um, dance sequences from old movies. Like what I know we, um, my daughter and I were watching clips from West Side Story the other day. And just like, just, I admire them so much. They talk um, of West Side Story as this big, uh, uh, it's Oklahoma, West Side Story, and Cabaret. I think are the big uh, musicals that are big trend centers. They talk about in the book, in the Wasson book. Yeah, and I just think that there's something. I mean, 
you know, um, whenever I'm doing like my morning jogs and you know, you have to like your brain has to kind of melt away and get into the rhythm of the job and jogging, your brain goes into various places. The main place where mine goes to is the stage and like imagining myself dancing and, 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 and picturing myself as a beautiful butterfly dancer, you know, you know, someone who, someone who can dance well. And that, that's kind of like my happy space. And I've never been that kind of person. I enjoy dancing. I will cut a rug at any wedding, but, um, I'm, but the, the notion of being a, trained classical dancer who's so in touch with one's body has always been so fascinating to me and I don't know if, if it, it, it heartens me to think about Fosse taking that sort of love and passion and transitioning it into an editing style that is so unique and and fascinating. I get that. I, I, I think the transition to the editorial style just because that's the stuff that history is going to remember. I think the thing I found fascinatingly odd and weird, the musical I mentioned earlier um, one of the things that I wrote, one of the most notable things about it is there's no dancing in it. In fact, there's a line in the in the movie I wrote that I was so proud of where a character asks another character to dance and the other character responds with, oh, I don't dance. I don't like people with confidence. <laughs> and one of the things that like with, with the Watson book and the Fosse Verndon series, when they, they show weirdly everyone gives Fosse credit as someone for such a perfectionist. Like we also haven't talked about like his general creative style of, um, constantly, constantly changing, constantly reworking. Nothing is set in stone. Everything is fluid. Everything has a tiny bit of way of improvement. And he's dealing with these dancers and he's actually really kind to them as he's constantly improving their performance. Although occasionally they show points where he seems like he might or might not, be cruel to them. I didn't mention one of the fascinating things that both the miniseries and the book takes on is the book opens with the quote with uh, Bob Fosse asking, how much time do I have left? With the idea being that he has an infinite amount of ideas that he can maybe try an A and B on and maybe improve or not. And so within the style of both, both the miniseries and the book is structurally done with how many, how much time he has left in his life. So each chapter in the book is like uh, 12 years left or 11 years left. And um, the miniseries is done with how much time is left till he dies. And then obviously it builds up to the, his death scene in the miniseries. Well, that reminds me of two things. I'll, the first thing is a quote from Isaac Asimov, which I used to have on my computer screen for a while, which was, if I think he said something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy it, but it was basically, if someone told me I only had six minutes left to live, I would simply write faster. Um, <laughs> and... Which, if you know Isaac Asimov's, I mean, Isaac Asimov, I think he must have, I think he published like 150 books or something like that in his lifetime. He has the, I, he had this great writing thing I remembered. I think it was him that said that one of the best uh, methods to help him writing was to go watch a bad movie in a theater. Oh, that's interesting. He would get bored with the movie and then start thinking about his own story. That's interesting. I used to do, uh, I mean, I'm not much of a writer, but like I, I used to do that in church. That was always my, where I, like, when I was, so I used to go to church still a lot when I was still in film school and I was making short films. And that's where I would get all my ideas from because there's something, uh, I mean, I, I grew up Catholic. And so there's something about the Catholic service that is, I mean, you know, I don't know if you know this, but the Catholic services, but they do, it's like, it, 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 there's a structured, uh, you know, you do the first reading, the second reading, and then the homily. And, um, uh, oh, sorry, the first reading, the second reading, the gospel, and the homily. And bad the reading Catholic. Ser- yeah, I know. I've, I've, it's been years, so and I think they've probably changed it up since I last went anyway. Um, but uh, they the, the readings in the gospel are always the same every year. That, that that particular day on that year, it's always the same. So you've heard these stories countless times if you've gone to church ever since you were a kid. And the particular church that I went to, 
the homily that was read, uh, read by the, uh, the priest or the deacon, uh, we didn't have very enigmatic or, or very, the, 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 sorry, charismatic. We didn't have very charismatic speakers. So they were always very boring. <laughs> anyway, this is just to say my mind would always drift into this kind of trance-like state. And I found like those were the best ideas I got. Uh, it's the only time because it's really it's the only time in your life where you're like you slip into that kind of state of boredom, and you're, you're is and you're that stuck why somewhere. all your short films were about guilt? They're about guilt. They're both about guilt and religion. A lot of them were too, because I was like, that's where I was doing any, all the writing I was doing. <laughs> uh, Alan Heim, have you? Um, he's have you? He still lives in New York. Have you ever crossed his path? Not that I know of. I was so I was actually I I don't I didn't know he he's not an editor that I followed. Um, his career-wise, like, as much as some of the other people are. Me neither. Like, it's weird because, like, I watched for the first time Liza with a Z, which was where he got, uh, Fosse got the E for the EGOT. And it mm. was where their first ex- exchange, where he uh, worked with Haim. And Haim was his editor until, until his last, until, until the end. And yeah, let me see. I, he worked with oh, LeMay. Sandy LeMay recommended him. And, oh, and Fosse, yeah. Fosse was a, a big Fosse. It's weird. Cause you know, Fosse had more of a Kubrickian output, but like he wanted to make a movie a year with craft like LeMay and like the hardness of cabaret, especially when you compare it to sweet charity, going to that, you could see LeMay coming out of that too. Not just the fling. Oh. It's LeMay. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, we had, I, I wrote down some of Alan Himes. Like I was like trying to go back through his his, his filmography. And I saw obviously he did Network, which is amazing. Hair, which is one of the most musicals that I love. Um, the, the the John Hughes film, she's having a baby. And, oh, and American History X. I, I mean, which I know American History X. That was another one that was fast. I that that was a big movie to me too as a teen in yeah, high school. Beautifully put together. And then I obviously know like I mean, there's so much like insane stories behind like how the editing of that and like how like the the and Tony K and all the difficulty with that. That, that bathroom sequence still is that's a pretty defining thing for me in high school. Oh, amazing! I mean, I haven't seen that movie in years, but I I do hold it back in my mind as like being a. Yeah, beautifully made film. I did want to ask though. I, I so I noticed uh, Alan Himes, his work changes at a certain point in terms of the kind of films that he's getting, and I noticed that he worked on The Adventures of Pluto Nash, and which former also, guest Paul Hirsch worked on too. Paul Hirsch worked on, and I remember because well, I read Paul Hirsch's book. And I saw that Paul Hirsch had some trouble, like what he was able to, like, like that movie being the bomb, the massive bomb that it was. He famously he felt- said that, like, he at one point worked on the biggest and uh, the the biggest or um, biggest box box office hit and biggest box office bomb of all time between right? and Star so Wars. Want, and so I wonder if uh, Alan Heim had any difficulty. Uh, after that as well. I mean, which is weird because, like, you know, people like Alan Heim or Paul Hirsch who have these like storied careers and have built up this like insane, I mean, like the careers they've had before they had this bomb are so incredible. You would think that, oh, who cares? But like, uh, well, you know, one quote he said at the end of the commentary I found fascinating was he was talking about, or no director had challenged him. He, he's, he's, he, the big recent credits he, he lauded it were his work with Nick Cassavetes, John Cassavetes' son. Yeah, but um, he said no editor or director had challenged him uh, like Nick Cassavetes had since Bob Fosse. But um, oh, interesting. You know, I didn't bring this up. You know, the big reason why I think the ending didn't work for you is that the original uh, uh, conception of the ending was supposed to be that the um, John Lithgow character was going to take 
over the show after uh, Joe died and the show was going to be success. And there was one iteration of the script or the conception of the movie where the ghost of Joe was going to see the success of the show after he died. I think that would have... I don't know how that works subjectively because like the movie is so inherently subjective, but... No, I think that would have been interesting now that you mention it because like it's it's like that what I was missing was the feeling of retribution maybe? I don't know. I Like something like here's a person who's committed all these sins in his life against these women, right? And they still love him. They still love him for it. Even though he's, he, like, even his ex-wife loves him, even though she kind of hates him. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and he's still successful. And really the only retribution he gets is he dies, <laughs> which he almost wasn't even that worried about. He was flirting with death as we talked about. And is, and the end is treated as a bad thing because he's being taken away from his daughter too. Yeah. Right. But he's, it's like, he should have, it's almost like, yeah, the movie, he should have had a failure. Like that would have been interesting because had the, had, had, had the, had the play that there he, was no failure in the movie. Oh my gosh. You're yeah. No. Wow. Had the play that he had been struggling with been taken over by somebody else and become a success. That would have been interesting because that would have shown that like it wasn't like he wasn't this unique. Ge- I mean, I, I I think it's so important to have a little bit of humility in there, like to show that like it wasn't just that like someone else was able to take something that he was struggling with and make success with. That 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 almost would have been more painful to him or a bigger failure to him than just the act of dying or something. Um, Based on the character, that yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I'm gonna keep going. I'm gonna keep going back to the eight and a half thing. The thing about eight and a half that makes it so great is that he doesn't make the movie. Like the movie is like like he fails at making the movie, which is so interesting. And it, like that, it kind of dissolves, and the movie it becomes something about uh, an exploration of different aspects of his life. You know, so he's a failure in the movie, and that's what makes it so interesting that a, that a, that a director would show that about himself. You know, at the end of the day, Keith, I gotta be honest. The big thing after reading all this Fosse stuff, watching Fosse burned in yeah i mean i love his work he's he's he 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 expanded the form he was a man who pushed people especially editorially into the day i think i re- want to rewatch eight and a half right now <laughs> i mean as much as i love all all that jazz eight and a half is an untouched movie <sighs> oh my god um keith phrase i want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to me um you're definitely going to come back for multiple episodes hopefully um but thank you so much for being here it has been my pleasure i will i'll take you up on the invitation anytime i love watching movies and talking about them with you man it's been great thanks man